Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us today. Well, today in the show, we're going to talk a little about balancing soil fertility. As always, though, we're happy to answer any question you've got. If you want to email us, it's radio at agphd.com, or you can give us a call, 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You can also send us a note on X, Ag PhD Media, Darren Hefty, or Brian Hefty. Okay, so just a week ago, I got this question. I was talking to a group of farmers about soils, and our main topic was nitrate, but we were just talking about soil testing in general. And the question came up about, hey, I went to hear a speaker a while back who said, on the soil test, all you need to look at is parts per million, that's it, and base saturation doesn't matter. And here, here's the thing. If, let's just say you've been looking at soil tests for decades, you know everything inside and out, and just off the top of your head, you can rattle off, okay, what, what exactly do I need for parts per million? And, oh, if my parts per million on this one nutrient are at X, then... I've got to have my parts per million on this other nutrient at Y. Okay, if you can do that, awesome. The challenge is, for about 99% of us, we can't do that. And uh, let me just give you one example. We talk about base saturation all the time. And this is a measurement. It's actually a ratio of five different nutrients to each other. So it's potassium, magnesium, calcium, sodium, and hydrogen. If you total up the percentage in base saturation, it's going to equal 100%. So basically, how much of that 100% is potassium? How much is magnesium? How much is calcium? And so on. Well, anyway, there are some people out there that are smart enough, and they know all these figures, and they can just think of it off the top of their head. But when you're calculating base saturation, you have to look at parts per million, then you divide that by atomic weight per valence times 10, and then you're going to look at the percentage of each one of those nutrients accordingly. And it's like, oh my god. That goodness. sounds easy, Brent. <laughs> right. I can't, I can't even remember the atomic weight of each of these things. Now, granted, maybe I slept through my chemistry class. I don't know. But all I'm saying is that's too complicated. And for most of us, we aren't looking at soil tests eight hours every single day. So we need simple things to take a look at, and that's where base saturation comes in. So if you look at the base saturation, and we've got, like, when when you come to a soils clinic that we'll put on, for example, we'll spend the day teaching you how to read a soil test. It's not that complicated. You can do it. You're by far smart enough to handle this. It's not tough if we keep each step simple. And base saturation, to me, is a simple way to look at balance of nutrients in the soil. So we have a little range that we want each nutrient to be at. So for example, on the show here, you hear us all the time talk about potassium. We want that in the 4% to 8% range. Now, there aren't. I'm not saying there are never exceptions. For example, if you had a 2CEC, that's basically pure sand. It'll hold almost nothing. So even if you were at 8% potassium, you have almost no potassium in the soil. So are we going to want to push that? Of course we are. But for most soils that we talk about in the Midwestern United States, where most of our listeners are at, 
or southern Canada. I, I mean, we're dealing with these soils that are a lot more than pure sand, okay? And so then we're really looking at that 4% to 8% range for base saturation K. And if you have that, you can feel pretty comfortable that it's in range. And here's why this is so important. Potassium competes directly with magnesium. If you go to the old Mulder's chart here, again, might have been a class you slept through in college, it's this this uh, big ball where they have all these different nutrients around uh, this circle, and they have lines pointing from one nutrient to the next. And this is important for human health, just like it is for plant health and soil health. But anyway, the point is there's a line connecting potassium and magnesium and and arrows pointing both ways. And all that means is those two nutrients compete against each other. So we've been able to prove very easily. And I mean, it's not like we discovered this. This is the way it has been for decades. People have known this. But when we dramatically increase the level of potassium in the soil, guess what happens? The level of potassium goes way up in the plant, but the level of magnesium in the plant goes way down. And vice versa. If I have super low K in the soil and high magnesium in the soil, well, I've got lots of magnesium there, and that's great in that plant, but not so good on the potassium, and all of a sudden we're potassium deficient, and we've lost yield. You have to have things in balance. So we're going to talk today about things like, for example, phosphorus to copper, phosphorus to zinc ratios. We'll talk about that potassium to magnesium thing just a little more, and some more of these different ratios, different things you can look at in your soil, and for that matter, then ultimately in your plant, because what we're after here is not just high yields. Now, don't get me wrong. High yields pays the bill, pays the bills, and I am all for that. I want maximum profitability on the farm. That's great. But also, we have to think a little about where does this stuff go? For example, on our farm, our silage, our grain corn, and our alfalfa, it all goes to a dairy. It's all going to a cow. If we don't provide the cow with good food, then what does the dairy have to do? Well, they have to supplement their ratio. Uh, I mean, if, if you, you are looking at a problem in your field, chances are you are also looking at a problem ultimately in the livestock, which eventually may translate to a problem in a human being somewhere down the line. So I realize that you're probably not thinking about this today. Most people aren't. But I'm just simply saying, hey, if we do the right things for the soil, ultimately, we should have higher yields. We should have healthier livestock. We should have healthier people. So this is an important topic, balancing soil fertility. We're going to be talking about this today. And we're going to be taking your calls and questions throughout the show. Stick around. This is Ag PhD Radio. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. 
It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. How can Naturals products help you raise bigger and better crops? Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. Biologicals, or naturals as we call them, are impacting every facet of agriculture today, and that will only grow in the future. That's why we're devoting a full day to our Ag PhD Naturals workshop, Wednesday, February 7th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. Our research team has spent years testing hundreds of Naturals products, and we want to share with you what we've learned. For more about this free event, go to agphd.com. If you look close enough, you can see the hidden potential within your fields. That's why an agro-liquid nutrition plan starts with the crop and identifies the precise combination of primary nutrients while focusing on the support of secondary and micronutrients. So every nutrient is working in harmony for your crop to reach its full potential, maximizing growth while offering lower use rates. Apply less, expect more, precisely. Find an agroliquid dealer at agroliquid.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, talking about balancing soil fertility on today's program. And this applies to everything that you're growing. So it isn't just a, a corn show or a cotton show or a vegetable show or something like that. This is this is everything. And uh, I loved one thing Neil Kinsey, well, I love many things Neil Kinsey has said over the years. But but one thing that, that kind of stuck out to me when one of the first times that Neil was was up here, uh, and and by the way, if you're interested in hearing Neil Kinsey speak, he's going to be uh, right here at the Ag PhD Field Day site in the Morton Center coming up late February. You can check all the details out at agphd.com if you'd like to attend that, uh, either virtually or in person. Uh, but one thing that Neil had said was, hey, I, I said, I've got this great soil for growing corn. Um, what would I have to change to make it great for soybeans or alfalfa or whatever? And he's like, if you've got great soil for growing corn, it's great soil for growing just about anything. Once you get this balance of nutrients right, you can do a lot of different things out there and be successful with mini crops or a great lawn or a great pasture or whatever you want to do. Uh, and I, one other guy that gets to work with a variety of soils uh, that also works with Neil is Bo Shropshire out in California. He does some consulting out there on a wide variety of soils and crops. Bo, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Darren. All right. So I, I think about our soils. I think about a 20 CEC. I think about 4 or 5% organic matter. And sometimes getting things in balance means I've got to put a whole bunch of one nutrient or the other, or maybe all of them, if it's if it's really down uh, to, to bring things up. And some of the lighter soils you get to work with, this balancing gets even more tricky because your crop is pulling a lot of fertility out. So you're, you got to be constantly adjusting. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like riding a bicycle on a tightrope, you know. Uh, you, the balance is what it's all about. All right. So when when you start, Neil often starts with calcium and magnesium. How about for for some of the lighter soils that you get in in Southern California and some of the other areas you get to work in? Well, you still that's still the uh, the major 
concern that we have is our calcium magnesium, especially when we start looking at lighter soils, because a lot of times our light soils can have really too much calcium, which allows the moisture and stuff to move through the soil quicker, um, which is what, you know, Brian obviously loves when we're talking about drainage. But, you know, sometimes you wind up having to add uh, additional magnesium to pull those particles together so that you don't lose that moisture as quickly. Um, and I've had lots of situations like that with with uh, grapes and dates and those kinds of things where, you know, the water um, just was jetting through the ground and not staying around long enough for the plant to be able to pick it up, you know. Yeah, yeah, that that is something that's kind of interesting, too. Uh, a lot of folks will say, well, I'm looking at plant tissue tests and I'm looking at soil tests, and sometimes I see things show up on the soil tests that aren't getting into the plant, and, and sometimes I don't see any deficiencies in my plant, even though my soil test looks like I could probably use a little bit more in terms of parts per million. How, how do you balance those things? You get to work with so many different crops, so many different rotations and those types of things. Uh, how do you find where that right level is for magnesium or for, for some of these other nutrients? Well, the trick is, thank goodness, uh, Dr. Albrecht had done a lot of that research, you know, years ago, back in the 40s and the 50s. But, for instance, I'll give you one great example. I had a, a, um, a grape orchard. There was uh, table grapes. Uh, they were flame grapes. It was about 450 acres. And uh, the grower called me and said, I'm just blowing my brains out. I've got drips set up on this thing, so I'm trying to efficiently manage my moisture. But he says, I'm running my drip 18 to 20 hours a day, seven days a week, trying to keep moisture on these vines because I've got one heck of a load of fruit. And so, you know, we went out and pulled some soil samples, and his magnesium was down in the 5% base saturation range, and his calcium was up at about 73 or 74 well, you know, I just said, look, there's just no way that that water's going to stay around. We need to have that mag up in the 10 to 12% range. And if we can get the calcium down a little bit, that would be, a, you know, an advantage. But uh, we went out there and we, we wound up putting on 500 pounds of um, so, um, magnesium sulfate, Epsom salts, uh, on the berm and uh, watered that stuff in. And within about 45 days, I dropped his water usage 20%. Wow. That's amazing. That's know? a and huge so cost you, savings and uh, resource oh. savings, too, for some of these water allocations. Yeah, exactly, because this was all pump water, too. And uh, this was just south of Palm Springs. Um, you could see the, there was a, the mountain kind of goes up behind this ranch, and you could see the old prehistoric water line up there about – you know, five or 600 feet. And, um, you know, it, it's amazing <laughs> when you start looking at that stuff. The calcium levels, he had been putting on some gypsum, which was the wrong thing to do. He had put some gypsum on one ranch lower in the valley and seen a response. But he'd never pulled a soil sample. So, you know, he says, what do we do? Well, we pull a soil sample so we know what we've got. And then we can measure it, and then we can do something about it. You know, it's, it's magic. Until it's, you know, you can, once you, once you can reproduce something, then it's science. Prior to that, it's just magic, okay? So if you can't measure it and figure it out, it's not science. So, you know, we're, we're using science to figure those things out. And, uh, yeah, so it made a huge difference in that particular deal for sure. 
You know, a lot of times uh, farmers raising corn, soybeans, wheat, uh, big acre crops like this are, are looking to growers raising uh, some of the higher dollar crops, whether it's vegetables or, or tree crops or whatnot, uh, for, hey, how are they using the technology and can it be done on our acres when our gross income is not that much? You know, what you're talking about, Bo, is taking good soil samples, paying attention to what's going on. It's not like it's super expensive to do those things. No, it's, in fact, the, the, this particular customer made the comment to me. He said, you know what? He says, every year I go down to the doctor and I have, you know, a, an annual checkup, physical, and they do a blood test. He said, you know what? I haven't done a blood test on my farm in 15 years. And I said, well, that's, that's a cool way to put it. You know, your blood test on your farm, you're going to take care of your body. Let's take care of your farm as well. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? Different fields and different soil types and different irrigation sources, all those things can change. So looking looking at each field a little bit different is really important. Uh, is once a year enough when you're doing a multiple crop rotation like that, or do you have to do some more sampling between each rotation? Well, depending, depending on the crop rotation you've got. I mean, I like to come in at the tail end of a crop or the beginning of the next crop and pull a soil sample. Okay, now, so I won't do that with, let's say, for instance, you know, some of the lettuce and spinach and arugula and mizuna and stuff that we grow, that's about a 35-day crop. Well, we're not going to take samples every 35 days. But if we can take a sample out, you know, 35 to 60 days ahead of the very first crop, then that's that's an exceptional way to do it, and then you then you go through those you know say three or four crop cycles of that particular deal, and then come at the tail end and take another sample to see where you're at, you know. And that was or those were organics, and on that particular deal, it's really critical to pull those samples because a lot of times our organic growers they tend to want to use compost all the time, and so they use such high amounts of compost. Uh, sometimes they get their phosphate up so high that, they're, that they block out all their zinc and they can't get moisture in the plant. So you can't carry any nutrients in the plant if you can't get water into it. Well, what you're highlighting here, Bo, is a balance issue with soil fertility and uh, getting great information here from Bo Shropshire. He's a consultant out in California. Getting good data to work with, taking accurate soil samples, and then finding somebody you can work with to to help you that's been through some of these things a time or two, like Bo, uh, is just the way to go. So you can figure out these balance issues and improve productivity, reduce water usage, all, all those good things on your farm that help you make more money. Bo, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. Good talking to you again. Hey, you betcha, Darren. And hopefully this year is going to be a, 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 let's see, a rear kicker for all of us, okay? <laughs> well, I hope that in a great way. We can show you some more moisture here. That would be really helpful to us uh, to help get more nutrients into the crop. And we're talking about some of those things today, balancing soil fertility, having the fertility where you need it when you need it. If you've got questions, our phone lines are open at 844 844- 44 Ag PhD. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. 
Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Morton Buildings has served the American farmer for more than 120 years. From manufacturing our own building components to constructing your building, Morton takes pride in being the industry leader in post-frame construction by providing a quality building and exceptional customer service. A Morton is built to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. For the smallest investment with the biggest impact on yield, upgrade your planter with Germinator Closing Wheels from Farm Shop MFG. To see how we stack up against the competition at a fraction of the cost, call us at 712-520-6051. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. How can you make more profit from your soybeans this year? I'm Darren Hefty. We'll answer that question at our free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop Thursday, February 8th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. We'll dive deep into your best options for control of yield-robbing pests, trade options including extend flex and enlist, fertility, and much more. If you want to make raising beans more lucrative and more fun, come to the free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. Learn more at agphd.com. Win the war against weeds in your soybean fields with fierce herbicides from Valent USA. With three different formulations and multiple modes of action, you're sure to find the right fierce product to protect your operation from tough weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Water Hemp. Give your soybeans a strong, clean start with up to eight weeks of residual control with the powerful pre-emergence protection of fierce herbicide. Ask your local retailer or visit valent.com fierce to find the right fierce formulation for you. Always read and follow label instructions. The hard-working, independent spirit of rural America can often be isolating. It's not often discussed, but mental health issues are real. Now's the time to lead by example, talk openly, and show that a strong mind is just as important as a strong body. FMC is proud to be working toward ending the misconceptions around mental health. Through awareness, guidance, and action, together we can uproot the stigma. listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We want your soils to be productive. We want your farm to be in even better shape for the next generation. We want our farm to be in better shape for the next generation. That's what we're trying to do. We're talking about it today uh, in terms of balancing soil fertility. But one other angle on this, and we get a lot of questions about this, is uh, talk more about soil health. Talk a little more about cover crops, how we can be successful with that. And we're real pleased to have Rob Myers on with us right now. He's the director for the Center of Regenerative Ag down at the University of Missouri. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, first of all, I should mention this for our listeners. Uh, Rob's actually the guy that wrote the book <laughs> on cover crops. In fact, I received a book in the mail from you, Rob, and, and I want to say thank you for that, too. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah, we put out that resource book to answer questions that farmers and others working in agriculture may have about cover crops because there's so much new information about cover crops in recent years, as you know. 
Well, we get a lot of farmers that call in and they're really focused on improving soil health and, and they view cover crops as part of that. But talk to us a little bit about that. What What is really going on here with soil health? What what can we con- control and how quickly can we turn around some ground that maybe isn't in the best shape for uh, soil health? Well, as you know, it really starts with the soil biology. In the past, you know, when I was getting my PhD in agronomy, we were learning about the physics and chemistry of the soil and not much about the biology. But today we've had, fortunately, all these additional insights on soil biology, things like mycorrhizal fungi, which I'm sure you've talked about on your show a few times. And we're realizing that if we can keep living roots, such as from cover crops in the year as much, uh, much of the year as possible, that that can really help with our soil fertility. So for example, those fungi can make phosphorus more available in the soil, but can help with nutrients in general. So as we're boosting that soil fertility, we're trying to gradually increase the organic matter and uh, keep that soil microbial community healthy so that we're getting good nutrient cycling in the soil. Let me ask you about keeping plants growing as long as possible. Now, for guys in the South, they say, well, we aren't going to freeze. We can keep something growing all the time. For the guys in the North, it's, well, we're going to freeze and nothing's going to be growing out there. But there are perennial crops and those roots are still alive out there. How, how big a deal does that make, putting, putting perennial crops or crops that can survive through the winter out in the rotation? It is important. If we can do it, it's a big help to the soil. And even a winter annual like cereal rye may look dead above ground if we get these cold snaps we had this winter. You know, it'll brown some like even winter wheat would, but those roots are still growing. They're still alive very much so in the soil. And those roots are exchanging carbohydrates or exudates with those soil microbes. So they're keeping those soil microbes alive during the winter rather than having them die back. So it may look like there's not much happening above ground, but definitely down below in the soil, there's still life and activity. All right. So you know, when we look at cover crops, that's part of the, the equation here. But what about field practices, too? Because uh, certainly there's as many different ways of doing things as there are farmers out there. There certainly are. And, you know, I think as we look at our overall soil health management, we can look at a variety of approaches. Of course, it starts with reducing disturbance of the soil. And so many farmers are doing a good job of trying to minimize that soil disturbance, which, of course, saves money in terms of trips over the field, maybe needing a little less equipment and saving some on those costs as well as fuel. Uh, so minimal disturbance is helpful. Um, of course, keeping those living roots from the cover crop are important. If we can bring the livestock back into the picture in our crop fields in some fashion, grazing cover crops or otherwise, that can be helpful, getting the manure, urine, saliva from the grazing animal. Now, of course, not everybody still has livestock, but maybe they've got a neighbor that can bring over some animals to graze. So there's certainly some principles of soil health that NRCS and uh, university agronomists like to talk about and Keeping the soil covered is part of it as well, keeping that residue there to provide that blanket on the soil. Well, it's, it's pretty interesting, just all the stuff that you're doing down at University of Missouri, looking at uh, residual herbicides and impacts on different cover crops and, and looking at, well, just a lot of different cover crops out there and what each plant is a little bit different in how it interacts with the soil biology and, and just even, like you mentioned, just the physical things, well, how deep are the roots going to be, those types of things, lots of different benefits from, from different crops out there. 
Yeah, and you know, it's interesting with cover crops, there's over 40 different species sold today. Sometimes that can be a little daunting for somebody that's just thinking about getting into cover crops. So I always say start simple. Fortunately, for listeners in the Midwest, the Midwest Cover Crop Council has simple two-page recipe guides. Here's a cover crop that will work well in your state. Uh, They have it for each of the states in the Midwest. So, for example, in much of the Midwest, cereal rye before uh, soybeans works very well. Corn's a little more problematic because uh, we can see some issues with cereal rye tying up nitrogen for that corn seedling. So we either want to terminate that rye early or maybe adjust our nitrogen management to get some additional nitrogen on at the time the corn seedling is getting going. But we do have other cover crops we can look at ahead of corn, depending on where we're at and the soil types we have. Uh, certainly more interest in brassicas that may be winter hardy enough to get through the locations we have. There's interest in things like cover crests that maybe provide an alternative to harvest in the spring ahead of soybean planting. So uh, it's very interesting to see the uh, emergence of some of these newer species of cover crops. Balanza clover is another one people are starting to look at. So uh, you can start simple with something like cereal rye or maybe oats or radishes that winter kill, but lots of choices out there to fit different soil types. I'm a visual guy. I like digging. I like seeing what's happening below the soil surface and and what these crops are doing out there. I also like seeing my topsoil stay in place. (laughs) You mentioned uh, reducing tillage as much as you can and and utilizing cover crops to protect that soil on the surface. I, I love doing those things. I love uh, seeing the difference that that can make. Uh, when when it comes to kind of a long term, we get a lot of farmers saying, okay, I'm interested in getting into this for one benefit or the other. A lot of guys have different targets and reasons that they're doing it. You mentioned grazing and other things. Uh, what do you see over the over the long haul? How do you, how do you say, well, cover crops are going to pay because of what? I think it really depends on each field and farm. Uh, We put together a a national cover crop economics report that it's easy to find online. Just do Sarah cover crop economics. And and I authored that. We outlined seven different ways cover crops could pay off for a farmer. So for some, it's herbicide resistant weeds. It'll really be what the cover crop pays off with, helping combine with herbicides to manage those weeds. On another farm or field, it may be soil compaction. The cover crops are helping with But overall, we come back to soil health is the driving thing farmers say is the reason they're doing this, because as they improve that soil health over time, they're really improving the resiliency of the soil. I equate it to another form of crop insurance. The cover crop will help us at any point in time, but it really helps in those tough weather conditions, a drier summer or a wetter spring, helping us manage that soil moisture so that we're getting the moisture we need to get the crop to grow successfully, but maybe not too much if it's a wet spring like we have some years. So uh, that soil health is really a key part of why we're using these cover crops in the long run. Talking with Dr. Rob Myers here down at the University of Missouri. He's the director of the Center of or I'm sorry, Center for Regenerative Agriculture. And he also wrote a book, Cover Crops, Improving Life on the Land. Uh, Rob, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. Thanks again for the book. We really appreciate that. And thanks for the work that you're doing. You bet. Thank you for what you're doing. Appreciate it. You bet. 
Yeah, Brian, there's lots of different ways to do things. And and uh, like Rob was mentioning, over 40 different cover crops that are being used, lots of different recipes. And then, of course, some farmers are utilizing them for grazing. Others are, are just leaving the cover crop out on the field. That's what we're doing. Uh, we get questions on that all the time. What are you doing when you put oats out there for a cover crop, for example? We, we aren't trying to get seed or hay or anything like that. We just want to uh, get something growing out there as long as we can in the field. And, and honestly, we love having that root mass that oats can put out for us too just to uh, try and maintain or perhaps even build our organic matter in our soil. Yeah, everybody has a different goal, it seems like. Our goal is to reduce erosion. So if your goal is something different, then you may want some different cover crop. And we talk about this all the time, but honestly, I don't view a cover crop as, oh, I can graze it, I can bale it, I can harvest it. That's a cash crop in our book. What a cover crop is is something you plant with no intention of pulling anything off the ground. It's literally just there to help build your soil, protect yourself from erosion, and and go on from there. But whatever, doesn't matter. I mean, we don't care why you put the stuff in exactly. If you want to do the best job with it, that's really what we're here for, is to talk about how to maximize production of anything. Cover crop, cash crop, you name it. We're going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag right after this. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an authority brand herbicide plus a post-application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy-duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kosha, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions. Insects have reigned since the dawn of time. Adapted to their surroundings. Experienced the harshest climates and toughest challenges until now. With two modes of action, Ridgeback Insecticide delivers one devastating outcome for soybean aphids. Extinction from your fields. They may have lived through it all, but they won't survive this. End soybean aphids reign at ridgeback.corteva.us. Are you ready for better efficiency, more productivity, higher yields? Then you're ready for John Deere Precision Technology, which starts with three core pieces. First, a G5 display gives fast views of your work and a window to future technology. A Starfire receiver gives you sub-inch repeatable accuracy without an RTK base station. And a JD-Link modem gives you a live view of your entire operation. Get precise and talk with your John Deere dealer or visit johndeere.com backslash face. How can Naturals products help you raise bigger and better crops? I'm Darren Hefty. Biologicals, or Naturals as we call them, are impacting every facet of agriculture today, and that will only grow in the future. That's why we're devoting a full day to our Ag PhD Naturals workshop Wednesday, February 7th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. In recent years, natural products have exploded onto the market, making it tough to make the right choices for your farm. Our research team has spent years testing hundreds of natural products, we want to share what we've learned with you. Naturals have enormous potential for growing profits on your farm. So whether you're trying to reduce your crop's nitrogen needs, make your crop cooler and more drought tolerant, control diseases without pesticides, or just boost overall plant growth and health, you won't want to miss this exciting workshop. It's the free Ag PhD Naturals Workshop, Wednesday, February 7th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. For more information and to register, go to agphd.com. 
My mom's got a new case I extractor and it can do it all. Bail hay all day. See in the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Ship like a race car? Steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out caseih.com. Hey everybody, come on in. The Egg PhD mailbag is about to begin. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, and we have reached the Ag PhD mailbag time, and I'm always excited about that because there are so many questions that come in. I love talking about a variety of different topics. Uh, we'll start off with one from Russell. He said, all right, micronutrients, guys. Is it better to spread them in the spring or to put them out there in the fall? Well, there's a big difference between spring and fall in South Dakota versus in Florida. You yep. know and on heavy soil versus light soil <laughs> right. and irrigated ground versus dry <laughs> right. land ground. So I don't think we can appropriately answer that question. And, on- and here's the other thing too, Russell. Are you trying to build levels up in your soil right. or are you just trying to feed this year's crop? Okay, but when we say micronutrients, there is a tremendous difference. So, for example, copper, zinc, they're not going anywhere. So you can put those out whenever you would like. Fall, great. Sounds awesome to me. I'd like to get it done, get those things balanced out with my phosphorus, and I just I have the job done. If we're talking about boron, now that's when we have to be a little careful. If we have heavy soil, and like us, we're frozen five months out of the year, our ground is, fall is spring. There's no difference. I don't care if you put it out a week or two before freeze up in the fall or you put it on a week or two after the spring thaw, it's basically the same. Nothing's moving. So I'd put the boron out in the fall in my situation. But in your situation, if you have light soil, lots of rain, your ground's not frozen, and it's whole different. With boron being leachable, we have to be much more careful with that than we do with something like zinc or copper. But the key thing is somehow, some way, we just want our soil to be balanced, and we want our plants to have the right amount of every nutrient every day through the growing season. Yes, that's an impossible task, but (laughs) that's what our goal is because then we maximize crop productivity. All right, this one comes in from Brandon talking about planting corn. He said, what if the moisture line in the soil is down at three inches or maybe even more? Wouldn't it be better to have your corn sitting there in that moisture, imbibing it, rather than sitting in that dry dirt, hoping that it would rain sometime soon? Probably. But let's put it this way. If rain is in the forecast, and it looks like there's a good chance in, let's say, three days, and also let's say that you're in conventional tillage, you might go, hmm, if I put it down at three inches and I do get a big rain, I'm going to have surface crusting, and I might lose half my plants. So you've got to weigh that out. Also, you just have to understand when you're down at three inches deep, you are not able to maximize yield anymore. You've given up some of your yield potential. Now, I'll gladly sacrifice that little bit of yield potential for being in moisture and having consistent emergence 
if I'm in a pretty dry situation and in a pretty dry area. But yeah, I mean, you have to weigh those things out. So here again, hindsight's always going to be 2020. And a month later, I can tell you what exactly the right thing to do was based on when you planted and your situation. But yeah, there there are some times when we will tell people to exceed the maximum planting depth on corn, which is two and a half inches, in order to hit moisture in a dry area when you're not concerned about crusting, and when there's no rain that is imminent in the forecast. All right, thanks for the question. You get this one from Gary up in Ontario, Canada, and he wants to know what kind of planter we're running, Brian. He said, are you guys still running a Case IH planter? I've been watching your show, and I've noticed a John Deere planter. I've also noticed some Harvest International planters going out there. What, uh, what do you run? I know you've done some testing on that in the past. We've run just about every brand there is to run here in the last few years. We here's the here's the problem. When anybody asks us, well, what are you doing on your farm? We farm about 3500 crop acres and we literally call our farm uh, HBS research farms. <laughs> so, we are trying a lot of different things. It's not just trying different pesticides, we're trying different seeds, different crops, different uh, planters all kinds of stuff. So yeah, I mean, our main planter right now is a John Deere, but I'm pretty sure last year we ran a Case IH. I don't think we actually ran the Fent. Yeah, I think we did. Did we? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think we did. Just on one yep. field. Yep. But. Um, and we've run Harvest International for research. What do we even have right now for research? Harvest International. Is that the new one too? Okay. So yeah. And it's hard for me to remember. I lose track because we keep uh, changing things out. And that's on the and, road all the time. <laughs> right. I don't even see it. Um, so anyway, yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of things. I'll put it this way. If you compare almost any planter today to the planters we were using 10 and 20 years ago, there is a, a definite difference. There absolutely is an improvement. And I know new equipment costs money. I, I don't like writing the check either. Believe me, we have the debate on our farm too. But if I can make some little improvements, boy, that's a big deal. I, I know Darren was big on, he was hitting me up hard just a few years ago because he wanted improved planting, improved emergence. Not that it was bad, but he's like, it could be just a little bit better. So let's make these changes. And we did. And so it things just keep getting better. And that's what we always as farmers have to do is challenge ourselves to get better. All right. Uh Speaking of getting better, it's Nick from Iowa with a question, and he wants to do some soil sampling. He said, how dry does my soil have to be to do soil sampling? I'm wondering if I can do it as soon as the frost is out, but expecting it to be still fairly wet at that point. Yeah. Um, so Midwest Labs, I know, has done some research work on super dry soils versus wetter soils. I don't know. I don't think I, mean, I don't think they really care about that as long as you can pull right. an accurate sample. Right. And That's if you're using key. a soil probe, for example, and it's muddy, uh, I'm not super confident you're going to get a representative right. one inch, two inch, three right. inch, four inch, you know, all the way down to six inches. Right. Or the same token, if it is so bone dry and hard. Are you and it's powdery? I don't think you're going to be able to keep that representative sample either. So there is a fine line where you need some moisture, but not too much. So if you can do it without it being a muddy mess, yes. uh, it's fine if it's still relatively wet. Yep. Yeah. The key thing, and you could actually take frozen soil too. We don't care 
and it doesn't seem to make that much difference in the results. Yes, they've shown that if the soil's super dry, your potassium level and your soil pH level will both be a little bit lower than they normally would be in normal moisture. But where Darren's going with this is if you're pulling a six inch core, if you can actually pull the six inch core with consistency, we're all for having you test anytime. All right, got this one from John up in North Dakota, and he said, I've got the AIM uh, cap stem system, and it's a little hard using AMS. It's a little bit hard on my plungers in the pulsating system. I'm wondering, you guys talk about water right and bioprep, your water treatment products that you're using on your farm to help microbes tie up hard water ions and so forth. If you're using that, do you find that ammonium sulfate dissolves better in the spray solution, or do you have any other suggestions for how we could still use ammonium sulfate without it being as hard on some of the plungers and different things in our system. Warm water is the best thing you can always use for getting anything to dissolve. So that's where we like, I mean, if you can have your... Um, have your, a cone your, inductor, well, warm water, those types of things. Yeah, helps. but just when you pre-fill your great big water tanks, you know, your nurse tanks, if you've got those sitting outside and they can be in the sun and warm up a little bit, that usually does help. And as we go later in the season, that helps. The other thing is just to try to buy a fine, a nice fine grade of ammonium sulfate. There is fertilizer grade and there is spray grade. You want the spray grade. And so that's, I guess, the big thing. But I mean, we've been using ammonium sulfate and lots of it for decades now. I mean, and granted, we may have just been lucky finding the right kind of ammonium sulfate that has dissolved well, but we love ammonium sulfate because it's inexpensive and it does several things for us. Not only does it sequester the hard water ions, but it also will lower the pH just a little bit. It provides some nitrogen to help the plant recover a little quicker and sulfur. And also then the, the herbicide seems to go into that plant better and we get a little bit better effectiveness because there are some nitrogen sensitive weeds like water hemp, for example. So it's fairly inexpensive and yeah, we like it. So if you can use it, great. But I don't think that those water treatment things will help you much, but you can try it in your water and just see. I think warmer water will help more than anything. Well, stay tuned. We'll get to more of your questions next. Can you predict the future? I can't. That's why when I'm planting soybeans, I treat with Heads Up Seed Treatment. With more than 15 years of research, Heads Up offers proven protection against both white mold and sudden death syndrome. So no matter what the year throws at you, you've already taken that first step to be prepared. Don't let your beans suffer from disease when they're just starting to look their best. Tell your seed dealer you need Heads Up Seed Treatment. Learn more at HeadsUpST.com. Because the challenges you face are getting bigger every year, BASF is committed to helping with more than boots on the ground. We're committed to boots in the mud, boots on the steps of your truck, your tractor, your combine, the linoleum tiles of your coffee shop, the concrete of your co-op, the gravel in your shed. So we can listen, learn firsthand, help right now to ensure success. BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. How can you make more profit from your soybeans this year? I'm Darren Hefty. We'll answer that question at our free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop, Thursday, February 8th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. 
We'll dive deep into the best options for weed, insect, and disease control. We'll talk through trade options, including Extend Flex versus Enlist. You'll learn the best ways to stop the worst yield-robbing pests in soybeans, such as gall midge larvae, sclerotinia white mold, water hemp, and kochia. A well-managed soybean crop can have a huge impact on your bottom line. If you've thought of soybeans as a secondary crop in the past, consider this. With today's prices, 70 or 80 bushel soybean yields can give you more than $1,000 of gross income per acre. So if you want to make raising beans more lucrative and more fun, you won't want to miss this free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. It's Thursday, February 8th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. Learn more and register at agphd.com. Are you ready? We got the need, the need for seed treatment. Start your engines. Ready, set, Intego. Start your season strong with Intego Sweet Soybeans, Intego Fungicide Soybeans, and Intego Sweet Cereals OF from Valent USA. Ask your Valent rep about seed treatment solutions or visit valent.com slash Intego. Always read and follow label instructions. Planting preparation starts as soon as harvest ends. So do successful at-plant strategies. Put time on your side with at-plant inputs, insights, and innovations that help you make the most of next season's planting pass. You're already thinking about seed, inputs, and crop protection when you plan your season. Include them all in your planter to give yourself an at-plant advantage that pays off at harvest. Always read and follow all label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag time, and I'm handing some soil samples to Brian right now that Luke sent in. He said, hey, guys, uh, got a farm that I've been renting for a few years, pattern tiled on 50-foot spacings within the past five years. Uh, I raised soybeans for the first time this past season, and I saw potassium deficiency on the leaves. Now, I know once you see deficiencies, you got a serious problem. So I yep. grid sampled on two and a half acre grids yep. and sent you the results. So got four questions for you. Uh, first of all, of the various deficiencies, which should I prioritize economically speaking? So we got some pHs that are anywhere from the sixes up to eights. We've got yeah. uh, nope. base saturation K less than two in most yep. cases, which yep. is what he's talking about here. Yep. Uh, but we got micronutrients that are short. Um, I guess I didn't notice what the phosphorus okay. was. Okay. All right. We get this question pretty often. And it's, all right, well, which one should I work on first? And I, I, I mean, that's a fair question. Here's the thing that I want you to think about. If we we go after one problem, let's say the potassium one, and then we still have, he's got some phosphorus levels. And I, I don't know exactly what I'm looking at here because there's a it says P1 and P2 and there's only one number in between them so I'm not sure if this is correct um, I think I, I think I know where I'm going but anyway some of these are like one or five or nine or I mean just really really low okay so my point is if I say all right let's fix the potassium if phosphorus is also absolutely a yield limiting factor why wouldn't you also fix that now I get it if you don't have enough money to fix both. But this is where we like variable rate applications. And I, I mean, you just have to look all the time at if I'm going to spend a dollar, can I get 
$1.50 back? Can I get $3 back? Or am I going to get 50 cents back? Both in the short term and in the long term, you got to look at this. So I'm just saying, if it's me, I'm trying to fix everything I can as fast as possible so I maximize yield and productivity on my farm. So when I take a look at potassium and I see, yeah, one and a half percent base saturation K, I mean, you've got to get that fixed. So you need to put on a bunch of K. And when I see phosphorus levels that are single digits, then you you got to put that on. I mean, it's it's going to make you money. So I wouldn't get too worried about it. In terms of the micronutrients, um, yeah, it looks like you got some things that are low. Um, these columns aren't exactly matching up on what the sheets Darren handed me. So I think I'm looking at the right thing here. Uh, but if it's different, then you can certainly uh, write back or ask us. But uh, zinc is... It actually, surprisingly, doesn't look too bad if this is the right number that I'm looking at here. And it says, you know, 9, 8, something like that, parts per million. So you're actually in pretty decent shape. But sulfur, um, 4, 5 on sulfur, it's really, really low. So, I, I, I mean, I'm I'm fixing the sulfur. I'm not so worried about my micronutrients at the moment. But, yeah, I anyway, anything that's real low... I want to be working on that. And if I say, okay, I, I I don't have any money. Here's what I can spend. Fine. Then let's look at, okay, I want to at least take a, a dollar and spend it on some copper. And I want to take three or four dollars and spend it on some sulfur. And you, you see where I'm going with this and, you know, do a little bit at a time. But yeah, there are many deficiencies that I see out there and I would absolutely be addressing them as fast as I can. And you don't have to completely fix everything immediately. What we found is if at least you get started on a build program, on a pretty good build program, you're going to do pretty well. And let's say you work on it for three years uh, to get your K and your phosphorus levels up. I mean, that's that, that, that should be pretty good. So I will now, after all these years of doing stuff, and now that um, Darren and I are a lot older and we have at least a little bit in the bank, then we'll fix it all immediately. Instead of being on a three-year build program, everything is a one-year build program anymore for the most part. But even for us, we go, you know, if something is at an all-time high, like a few years ago when phosphorus hit the all-time high, I'm going, oh, I don't want to build this year. And then like within a year or two, I think it was the fall of 2020, fertilizer was at a 15-year low. And I said, I wasn't planning to build everything to like maximum unbelievable levels, but we are doing it. And we hauled in so much fertilizer is unbelievable. So you always kind of have to be thinking about that too. Like what's the best possible time? When is the deal out there? All right. But here's the other thing. This is rented ground. So what do you do on rented ground? Do you talk Strip to land? Strip and band. Do you talk to the landowner or do you sure. just do what you have to do? Yeah. You always want to talk to the landowner first and you just want to explain to them, hey, this is what the soil test says. And then I'll bet you that the landowner doesn't even know that and doesn't know what the levels even should be. So, no, I mean, no offense. I'm not saying they, they aren't smart. They are very smart, but it's just a lot of people aren't used to reading soil tests. And all I'm saying is if you can explain that a little bit, they're going to go, oh, this person actually cares about 
about my ground. And you say, look, I can, I can put stuff out here, but the problem is when I put phosphorus out, I'm not going to pull all that out for five to 10 years. That's just the way it is. So I can band it and I can put on just this year's fertilizer and I can extract most of that, but I'd rather build your soil up and make it better. And I'd like to do that with a long-term lease and I can afford to do that. So can I work with you on something like that? And in many cases, that's great. I, we've also had, we had one landlord where I said, well, here's the deal. I'm willing to pay you quite a bit for rent, but your levels are really low. How about if we get your levels up to the right amount and you pay for that? And then I'll pay to maintain them and I'll pay you really high cash rent. And that landlord went for it. So I'm like, oh, awesome. In one shot, literally, we took all our low levels of, I'm not kidding you, everything. (laughs) And we fertilized the heck out of that field. And the landlord paid for it. And then we paid high rent. You know, don't get me wrong. and we had to maintain it from there. But at least we knew, oh, okay, now we've got all the levels in great shape. So talk to the landlord and just see how far you can get. If you can't get anywhere with that and they say, no, I don't care. I don't care what you do. I'm getting as much cash rent as I can. I don't care if I even rent it to you next year. Well, then you have no choice, but you got to band and you got to just think about extracting as much of what you put out this year as possible. All right. Here's the other thing that Luke was asking about is could he use Verify that we're using to take this data, write a variable rate application script? Yes, you can. Could you do it all at once? Well, sure, you could if you want to. Uh, but he said he also said, well, how do I go about getting a trial or demonstration of that? Hey, uh, contact Verify and their system is like anywhere from a dollar to five dollars per acre, depending on what you're doing. And you can sign up field by field. So you can do it on one field, literally, and try it out yourself for hardly any money. Let's just say this was, uh, I don't remember how many samples you had, 100 acres. Say it's 100 acres. I mean, it's somewhere between 100 and 500 bucks, depending on what you're doing. So pretty inexpensive to do a trial on that. Thanks for the question, Luke. Really appreciate it. Uh, get this one from Jace out in Illinois. He said, hey, guys, we're doing more soil testing on our farm and we were listening to your soils workshop and we saw you had a base saturation for sodium uh, on your tests. On the t- soil test that I have for my farm, sodium is just shown as pounds per acre. Uh, is there a way to convert pounds per acre over to base saturation or do you have a recommendation as to how many pounds per acre of sodium you can tolerate? No, our recommendation is based on base saturation. We like to see it less than 1%. If it's 2 or maybe even 3%, it's usually not the end of the world. But you, you definitely want to catch it before it becomes a sodic soil, which would be at 15% base saturation. Uh, it's interesting that this is one of our last questions of the day because this is where I started the day in talking about base saturation and how you calculate it. Sure, you can calculate it. You just take a look at all your nutrients in parts per million. Then you divide that by the atomic weight prevalence times 10. And then you look at, well, what's the ratio of each one to to the total adding up to 100%. So I realize what I just explained there, you're probably going to go, I don't know how to do that. So just send us your information, send us your data, and then maybe we can calculate that for you and we'll send it back to you. Thanks for the question. Speaking of calculations, Brian, here's a quick one. This one comes in from Jason. He said, all right, according to your Ag PhD fertilizer removal app, 250 bushel corn removes about 20 pounds of sulfur. When we're using ammonium sulfate and ammonium thiosulfate as our sulfur source, uh, when they say 24% or 26%. They actually mean sulfur, not sulfate. It's very confusing. 
Yeah. So how many pounds do they need of each then? If it's 24% sulfate? No, that- it's not sulfate. So I know it says sulfate, but it's actually sulfur. So this is one of the things. Always talk to your fertilizer dealer on this. Hopefully they know, are, are we truly talking sulfur or do you actually mean sulfate? But yeah, if you threw out 100 pounds of ammonium sulfate, you should get a, get 24 pounds of sulfur. You should be in good shape for that 250 bushel corn unless you leach away a whole bunch. All right. Thanks for the question, Jason. Yeah, we get a lot of fertility questions, especially as we're getting close towards planting. Spring is right around the corner. Thanks for listening to our show today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.